invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew, chapter 13. For those of you that are visiting this morning, we welcome you again. And uh, we've been uh, going through the book of Matthew. I believe we started in January of 2012, and now we're up to uh, uh, Matthew 13. We've got a little ways to go. Uh, We're probably on the five-year plan here. But uh, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at this morning a parable, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. We've come to these two parables where Jesus really doesn't give us the interpretation. Uh, You remember the parable of the sower and the seed, the first parable, and uh, we had the interpretation given to us by the Lord, and then we also had the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus was kind enough to give us the explanation for that as well, and it kind of uh, makes the preacher's job a little bit easier. But uh, here we have two parables where we're not given uh, the explanation. But uh, I have to admit, I struggled a bit with these two parables because in my reading and consideration of what others have concluded, I found a number of conflicting ideas. Uh, Surprise, surprise, that people would uh, disagree on what the Bible says, huh? Well, you know, note in the parables 2 through 7, there are seven parables in Matthew 13, but in parables 2 through 7, Uh, you actually have the kingdom of heaven is like. We have that phrase. And even though we do not see this phrase in the first parable, the sower and the soils, we do find the phrase, the word of the kingdom, in Christ's explanation of the parable. And there's a a great deal of debate uh, about the phrase kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Uh, What does it mean and what is its relationship to the kingdom of God? Uh, Many commentators say, well, they refer to the same thing. I believe there's a difference, and the difference seems to be that one is physical and the other spiritual, uh, but it's not my intention to go into great detail about that particular subject this morning. But I believe we can say by the context, and especially in light of the parable of the wheat and tares, that Jesus referring to Christianity in general, and I'll say more about this as we go along. But the thing to remember, I believe, is just that, the context. The context of these parables and their relationship one to another in this context. Now, I hope you never get tired of me reminding you about the importance of the context. I believe that is so important as you study God's Word. Someone has said a text taken out of context becomes a pretext. And we need to keep in mind what is being said in the context of where it's being said, not only the immediate, uh, but the more broader context here. And uh, so keep in mind that the parable, uh, of course, often said is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But Jesus took something familiar, uh, like sowing seed and wheat and tares and treasures, and eventually we'll look at nets and even... Uh, This morning we'll look at leaven. But he drew out of these common everyday items some spiritual truths for his disciples to learn. Now I'd like to preach this morning a really nice positive message that will make you feel good 
And so you can go home out, uh, from here and just say, hey man, that was great. It was wonderful to be uh, at Spooner Baptist. The preacher just makes us feel so good and comfortable. But don't count on it. <laughs> because I disagree with those who will take these two parables and do just that. You see, I'm afraid there's some serious issues at stake here, and they do not necessarily come across as being very positive. Although, throughout the Bible, even the negative aspects can be turned into positives if we receive them in the right spirit. Now, first of all, we're going to look at the parable of the mustard seed. It's found in verses 31 and 32. But before we read our text, listen uh, to these words which speak of what this parable is all about. By the way, did you notice a very simple outline this morning? Uh, not complicated at all. Uh, you can make it as complicated as you want to, uh, but uh, it's not very complicated there on the back of your bulletin. I always leave a space for you to, to make some notes. But a very simple outline this morning, two points. Now, the parable of the grain of mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. So that's, that's, that's my main points this morning. But as we talk about the context of this, I can't help but think of a more modern day uh, phenomenon, if you, you, you please, uh, uh, the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches held its first meeting back in 1948. Uh, that's even before my time. But here you had a fellowship of over 120 Protestant, Anglican, Orthodox, and some old Catholic churches from 90 countries throughout the world with a membership of over 500 million people. All of these religious groups considered themselves to be Christians. Christians. Now the first goal of this ecumenical movement spearheaded by the World Council of Churches, was to bring all churches into one visible organization. You see, the ultimate goal of the movement is to bring all religions together. And it's still in existence today. I mean, it was started back in 1948, but you can still go to World Council of Churches' website, and you can still find uh, uh, things about uh, things that are going on. They hold dialogues on peace, they have representative, they represent 1.5 billion people on the earth. And as you will see, that seems to be what this parable even is about. It's about a false growth, and it's what the World Council of Churches and the ecumenical movement is doing. And with that said, let's look at these verses and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Uh, and beginning in verse 31. Verse 31 says, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Here's the picture. You have this itty-bitty tiny mustard seed. In fact, that was uh, uh, the smallest seed known at that time. I think since then they've come up with even smaller seeds. But you have this tiny mustard seed that had been sown in the field. Now, we know from the other parables, the field is speaking about the world. 
It, Jesus has already made that point in the other parables. So the mustard seed is sown in the world. And this seed, a very tiny, it was the tiniest seed known back then, will usually grow into a bush, sometimes could reach a height of 12 to 15 feet high even, as a bush. But please don't miss what's going on here, because if you will, you, if you will miss what, uh, if you do miss it, you'll miss what this parable is about, I believe. You see, we're told that this seed does not grow into a bush like it's supposed to, but it grows into a tree. It speaks of an abnormal growth. And it's so big that the birds of the air nest in its branches. Now, the birds here, as we're told in the parable of the soil, who are these birds? Well, some people like to say, you know, birds, these are birds are looking for a place to live, a place to just flutter around, and to sing their songs. I was thinking about this again as I was walking this morning. It was a hot one this morning. Humid already at 6 a.m. I say, I'm going to have to get up at 4 o'clock to get my walk in with it's cooler, but here the birds were singing fluttering from tree to tree, and I'm thinking about these birds. Well, who are these birds? Jesus says the birds in the soil of the uh, uh, parable of the soils are the wicked one and his ministers. And why do I say the wicked one or Satan and his ministers? Because we have these birds, I believe, in our parable here. In the first parable, earlier in this chapter, the Lord spoke of birds. He said, the fowls came and devoured some seeds that fell by the wayside. doesn't sound like birds is an indication of anything good, but rather they represent evil. Now, I know probably after this message, I'll be mistaken as a bird hater. You know, some people love to feed their birds, and they love these the red birds and the finches and the you know all the different beautiful birds and then somebody will say, well, Pastor Fleming, he's a bird hater, he's a dog hater, he's a cat hater. He does you know the Bible doesn't have a good thing to say about dogs, so he doesn't like dogs and and a dog. I don't even know if the Bible mentions cats or not. They must be evil. So um, <laughs> you know. If you want to go away and hear say Pastor Fleming's a, a bird hater, uh, fine, go ahead. I can take it. But here, it doesn't sound like these birds indicate, you know, something good. The Lord said the birds were the wicked one who catches away that which is sown in the heart. And yes, the kingdom has grown. Christendom has grown, but I'm afraid it's filled with a lot of dirty birds. Christianity has grown, but there are many who call themselves Christians who are really not Christians. And we must be beware of these birds. Now, so don't take this as normal growth, as I've said here. It's not a picture of Christianity growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the people of the world can rest within its branches, and they can take refuge in this wonderful thing called Christianity. That's a nice picture. But it really doesn't fit what the Lord is saying here. It's a picture of abnormal growth spurred on by Satan and his messengers. 
It's a picture of false growth within Christianity itself. The numbers of people that call themselves uh, Christians is deceptive. You know, I believe even in our nation, which is supposed to be found upon Christian principles, supposed to be a Christian nation, uh, over 80% of Americans call themselves Christians. No way. Look at their lifestyles. Look at what they love. Look at what they say. And you'll see that their words don't match up with their actions. It's more of a name relationship. Oh, yeah, I've been a Christian all my life. My parents were Christians, so I must be a Christian. I remember as a, as a boy uh, sitting in our uh, school cafeteria, pulled, put my tray down. One day, a little fellow across the uh, table from me, he said, uh, what religion are you? Are you Protestant or are you Catholic? I said, I'm a Christian. You know, people call themselves Christians. They have no idea what a Christian really is. They're professors of God, but they're not possessors of salvation, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not many years ago, there was an article in the United States U.S. News and World Report and it was entitled, Defining the God Factor. After this article uh, ran, a few people sent in some letters to the editor, and one of the letters said this, To the question as to whether a religious revival is sweeping America, the answer is a definite, most definite no. A religious something is sweeping this country, but revival is an inaccurate noun to describe it. Perhaps the word fad was better. Or better still, maybe marketing campaigns, since uh, a description of growing portion of contemporary Christianity is a picture of a merger between American capitalism, modern culture, and traditional faith. Are these signs of revival? Hardly. A true revival can be described as a divine force, maybe powerful, maybe subtle, maybe both, that calls a society uh, to question its direction. The authority of a revival can be found in its results and to be, uh, to be called to take a hard look at oneself, turn from what, that which is wrong to be challenged to move, move upward and higher spiritual playing constitutes something of, uh, of the many purposes of true revival. You know, I think that's a good response because there are many people who say, you know, I'm a Christian. And Christianity has become a fad. You see, it's popular to be religious these days. It's popular to call yourself a Christian. From books to magazines to music, even movies, Christianity is selling. And that's drawn many into a faith, a faith, I put faith in quotes, for many of the wrong reasons. So we see a false growth within Christianity. It's evidenced by another article in the Newsweek magazine entitled, A Time to Seek. Listen to some of the quotes from this article, and I think you'll see what I mean. Instead of fitting religion, excuse me, instead of me fitting religion, I found a religion to fit me. Someone else said, each individual is the ultimate source of authority. Is that correct? No. Unlike earlier religious revivals, the aim this time is support, not salvation. A circle of spiritual equals rather e uh, spiritual equals rather than an authoritative church or guide. 
Someone else said in their efforts to accommodate, many clergy have simply airbrushed sin out of their language. Having substituted therapy for spiritual discernment, they appeal to a nurturing God who helps his or her people cope. Heaven by this creed is never having to say no to yourself and God is never having to say you're sorry. One preacher, apparently proud of the fact that he had banished hellfire and damnation, he dropped many of the terms of Christian theology. He said this, if we use words redemption or conversion, they think we're talking about bondage. There's a spirit of putting people over doctrine and denominations today. They inspect congregations as if they're restaurants and leave if they have nothing they found that's to their taste. Someone else, another quote is that they don't convert, they choose. The marketplace is now the most widely used system of evaluation by younger churchgoers. And then the church growth movement experts judge a minister's accountability not by his faithfulness to the gospel, but whether the people keep coming and giving. By that measure, the most successful churches are those that resemble a suburban shopping mall. You see, there's no commitment to God. There's no commitment today to a church, only to self. People are more interested in what the church can give them than what they can give the church. And in doing that, there is no spiritual growth. It's easy believism. It's feel-good gospel that does not deal with sin, the need for the Savior, and so on. Many of you remember Robert Schuller and his glass cathedral. And I only use him as an example because uh, he's probably the most well-known he said, I believe the responsibility of this age is to, is to, and this is his word, I can't hardly pronounce it, positivize, positivize religion. Now this is probably doesn't have much bearing on you people. He was talking to some unity people because he said, you're all positive. But I talk a great deal to groups that do, are not positive even to what we would call fundamentalists who deal constantly with words like sin and salvation and repentance and guilty, that sort of thing. So I'm dealing with these people. What we have to do is positivize the words that have classically only been negative interpretation. And so you can fill churches with that message that's really leading people to hell. And we see it today, this outward, abnormal growth. But there's also another problem, and that's the inward issues, the false doctrine or the puffing up of the believers, which this parable of the leaven we're going to see in a, in a, a little bit here. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, he says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. After their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from truth and shall be turned unto fables. People are not interested in being holy, they're just interested in being happy. God's desire is that we be holy people, 
And in doing so, there will be great joy, there will be happiness if we, we will obey. Again, I mentioned Robert Schuller. Let me just share with you from his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. How he changed many of the biblical terms we use uh, to fit his new theology. His definition of sin, any human condition or action that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to define dignity, that deep lack of trust that separates me from God and leaves me with a sense of shame and unworthiness, any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's his definition of sin. His definition of guilt, loss of self-esteem. His definition of hell, the loss of pride, that it naturally follows separation from God. A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Salvation, he defines as rescue from shame to glory, guilt to pride, fear to love, distrust to faith, hypocrisy to honesty. His definition of being born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image. From inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. And he even has a, a, a definition for repentance. His definition for repentance is positive, dynamic, highly motivated redirection of life from a guilt-induced fear and its consequence withdrawal from the divine call to a caring, risky trust which promises the hope of glory for yourself and your Heavenly Father through noble, human, need-filled achievements. And his definition of grace, divine self-esteem. Well, that's not what my Bible says. The Central Committee of the World Council of Churches is the principal policy-making body of that organization, and it's meeting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, several years ago. It had many messages of people urging us to adopt new approaches to non-Christian faiths. They said, because Christians cannot claim to have a monopoly of truth, we need to meet men of other faiths and ideologies as a part of our trust in and obedience to the promise of Christ. What a joke. Because it makes no sense. Jesus said in John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We need to die to self, not build up ourselves. What is truth? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you want to know the truth, get into the Word of God. And you can easily see how false doctrines and listening to the wisdom of men going outside of the Word of God will lead a person down the path of destruction away from God and feeling good about it. And that's what we see in our next parable here in verse 33. The parable of the leaven. Verse 33 says, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now this is not a picture, I'm afraid, of Christianity growing until it covers the whole world as some would like to teach. It's a picture of false doctrine growing within Christianity. And you see the leaven in the Bible is always a type of sin. Now everybody will say, Pastor Fleming, he's a, 
He hates bread. He's a dog hater, he's a cat hater, he's a bird hater, now he's a bread hater. Well, I know that bread makes me fat, so I, it's all right. I try to eat as little of it as I can, but my wife keeps baking it anyway. But in the Bible, we always find leaven as being a type of sin. It multiplies by rotting putrefaction. There's a word for you. And so the picture here is false doctrine getting into Christianity and it grows and it grows, affecting all of it and it's, if it's not separated or removed. Do we see that happening today? We certainly do, and at alarming rates. Let me just give you a few examples. Another article I came across a number of years ago, the report entitled, Evangelical Lutheran Report Accepts urges acceptance of homosexual unions. The report goes like this. The Bible supports homosexual unions and teaching teens how to use condoms to prevent disease is a moral imperative, says a task force leading the nation's largest Lutheran body into the sex wars. Another example tells me, uh, me of this, if this uh, you can tell me if this follows biblical truth. It's an article some years ago. Texas College unveils nude models. Baylor University will allow nude models in its art classes for the first time beginning next fall, but the conservative Baptist school still plans to draw the line when it comes to students bearing all. The university stress, officials stress the new policy does not represent a shift in Baylor's strong moral standards. For example, the school will continue to ban on-campus dances in keeping with the Baptist leader's belief that dancing will lead to immorality and nudity won't. I don't get that one, do you? But you know, that's really small potatoes when you think about some of the other things that are taking place in our world today. Press release issued by the Vatican a number of years ago, stated the following, made public today was the message of Cardinal Francis Renzi, president of Pontifical, uh, Pontifical, uh, Pontifical Council for the Interreligi- Interreligious Dialogue for Hindus on the occasion of the Feast of Diwali, which they celebrate this year. And a note accompanying the message mentioned that Diwali is the festival of illumination, a feast of renewal as the Hindus believe that this is the day the divine power has overcome the darkness of the world. Cardinal Lorenzo wrote in his report, the Hindu feasts are opportunities for us to draw closer to people belonging to different religious traditions. And they are providential occasions to reflect together in the light of and in the fidelity of, uh, to our respective religious beliefs. Listen, folks, it gets worse and worse. Um, a number of years ago, and, and there's still an organization, it's called the Jesus Seminar. It was a group of so-called Bible scholars who gathered to tell us what Jesus really said and what was added by his followers. In fact, what they came to the conclusion of was that less than 20% is actually attributed to Jesus in the Scriptures that he really said it. These are Bible scholars. They concluded that Jesus never said the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. Those are not the words that Jesus spoke as he hung on the cross. 
He never said, it is finished, according to them. They say Jesus never claimed to be God. They, uh, they deny His virgin birth. They deny most of the miracles that Jesus did. And you know what the kicker is? He never rose from the dead. They deny His bodily resurrection. And as these false doctrines continue to creep into Christianity and into our churches, they will grow and grow until it reaches a point where in some churches there's no need for a Savior. You're not a sinner. You've just got low self-esteem. And what ends up happening is the blind leading the blind and both heading for destruction. Now, if these so-called Bible scholars would only read what they claim to understand. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, he said, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, if Christ is still in the tomb, we're still lost in our sins. And according to the Jesus Seminar and many others, that is, that is what they believe. Paul goes on to say, if, if you don't uh, uh, have to be a Bible scholar to understand this, but, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Not only has Christ risen from the dead, but all those who are in Christ, who are born again, will also be made alive. They will never die, spiritually speaking. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a promise to us, and we can believe it because Jesus has risen. Now what will all this lead to? I'll tell you what it will all lead to. It will lead to a one-world religion that's going to be spearheaded by the false prophet or the Antichrist. You see, I believe we are living in the days of the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, the one that Jesus said he will vomit out of his mouth. Why? Because they have turned from him, they have locked him out of their lives, they refuse to let him in to receive him as Lord and Savior of their lives. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's all very interesting, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I, I tell you, it has everything to do with you. Jude tells us, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye would earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old ordained to, uh, to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. As Jude was writing about the glorious salvation that all believers in Christ have, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit seemed to get his attention and he changed the direction in which he was going. And now he's going to appeal to his readers to contend earnestly for the faith. And the word there, contend, means to fight for something with great strength, to strenuously defend something. We are in a battle 
for the truths of God as an enemy tries to negate what God says to deny what God has said. We're in a battle to keep it going. First Peter or First Timothy 6:12, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. You see, you are in a battle. If you don't realize it, the Christian life is a battlefield, not a playground. You're in a battle. Don't give up. Don't surrender, but stand your ground, for God's word is living and powerful and it's able to change life. We also read in 1 Peter 3.15, we are told, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, if we as Christians can't defend our own faith before someone who has honest questions and honest doubts, honest fears, then we're really in trouble. It'd be like us going into battle without knowing how to use our sword. We must be able to give a reason of the hope that is in us, but we also must do it with meekness. That's not being a wimp. But meekness is a word that speaks of power under control. It's seen in a wild horse that has been broken. He still has that power, but now it's under the control of his master. And we still have all that power, but it's under the control of our master, Jesus Christ. You see, I'm not saying that we should get into arguments with people. We shouldn't put people down. But in the fear of the Lord, speak forth the truth of God in the love of God. History has shown that once a school or a church compromises its position and sells short the fundamental doctrines of the word, there's really very little, if any, chance of them going back to retrieve that which they originally adhered to. Not one instance has there been an apostate body that returned to the fundamentals of the faith. This morning I believe that Christianity has grown, but it's grown falsely. Churches will adopt, adopt false doctrine. Churches are being puffed up. But we must stand strong in the faith. We must fight the good fight. We must hold on to that which is true. And we must earnestly contend for, fight for the faith that has been delivered to each one of us. So as Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 29, whom we have whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. May we have that same desire to share the truths of God to those around us to bring people to Christ. Let me just close with this warning, this exhortation Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, not after Christ. For in him dwelleth, in all, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is, in the, is the head of all principality and power. You know, the world's doctrines will cheat you. They will rob you. And they'll deny and go against the very word of God. But on the other hand, in Christ, we are complete. We need nothing else. And I trust that you realize the choice is yours.
Do you want to grow outwardly or inwardly? you want to be puffed up and, or built up? Do you want false hope or true hope? you see the world or Christ, which one will you choose? May it be Jesus, the giver and sustainer of life. I believe these two parables are more warnings than they are just saying, you know, Christianity's growing, it's such a nice thing. It's getting better and better and better all the time. But actually, Christianity is getting more and more filled with false teaching. False hope. I trust we'll stay true to God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that our love and our passion will be for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that has been given to us concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your precious word. The Bible, which is the final authority for our faith and our practice. And Lord, there's perhaps those here this morning who have lost their focus on the things of the Word of God, and they've gotten involved in other, other nice-sounding things. But Lord, help us to stay true to the Word. Help us to faithfully read and study it. Help us to faithfully hear it preached. We thank you, Lord, that we have a church where we can open the Word of God and we can look into what it says for us. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to take these words and take the, the principles and the doctrines that we learn from God's Word and, and make them a part of our lives every day. Lord, perhaps there's someone here that does not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that today they would come to know Him. Christianity is not just a religion. It's a relationship. And I pray, Lord, that each one here this morning has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship that is growing and becoming more Christ-like in every way. Bless our time of invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.